The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9.45 or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. So uh, there's this very logical link, connection, between the amount of care or focus or time we spend investigating something and the actual weight of that thing, the significance of that thing. There's a connection between how much energy we put into looking into something and searching for something and the significance of that thing. And so just as a way of painting a picture, uh, when I go into Chick-fil-A, um, I, every time, without fail, maybe few exceptions, but when I go into Chick-fil-A, I order a number one no pickles uh, with Chick-fil-A sauce, uh, just simple. Like, I don't go in and wonder what's happening in the kitchen, what are the methods that they're using back there. I don't think about, like, the internal temperature of the chicken. I just know it's going to be delectable. So I go in, order my number one no pickles, done deal, Chick-fil-A sauce on the side, dip the sandwich. Great. Now, when I was investigating and looking into the kind of engagement ring that I would get for my wife, I, I didn't use such little uh, investigative skills. I, uh, it would be nice, I, I bet every man in this room would agree with me, it would be nice if you could walk up to a jewelry store and just say, yeah, let me get a number one, and it just works every time. Uh, but that's, that's not the, the way that I approached it. I, I took more care. I, I asked, I tried to get a feel for what my then uh, girlfriend was, was liking, what, what things she liked, and so there was a lot more investigation that went into it. When you're looking for life insurance and you want to protect your family, you don't just kind of randomly blurt out something. You do your homework. You spend time investigating it. So there's this link. The, the amount of time that we spend, the energy that we look into certain things is always linked to how important that thing is. Now this morning, what we're going to look at in John 10 is, is something that is so important and so weighty, so significant that really, it has nothing that's kind of a close second. It's not like there's this thing and then there's another thing that's kind of close, creeping up. Like, this is something that's so supremely important. Everything else kind of looks like nonsense. It makes even looking for an engagement ring seems like it's pointless. I'm sorry, ladies. But this thing is so vital, so important. And if you're here and maybe you're, you don't consider yourself a church person or maybe you're someone who is skeptical about Christianity... This thing is something that if Christianity is true, if it is, then it has incredible, unbelievable amounts of impact and weight for your life. So this idea can be summed up in this question, and I want to give you this question. That is, when you die, where will you go? What happens? Are you sure? How sure? If you had to put a percentage on it. What, what, what's the certainty? What's the level of knowing? In John chapter 10, Jesus is going to address this topic. It's a weighty one. Literally, it is the most weighty question. It's a question that every major world religion, it's the question that philosophers try and answer. It's where are we going? And in John chapter 10, Jesus is going to address this topic. So look at, at John chapter 10 with me, starting in verse 22. This is what it says. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, 
How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, the message of the book of John up to this point, uh, there's basically one central theme. John, all throughout his gospel, is pointing to this one truth, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, he's the Savior, he's the one who's come to restore and rescue us. And so there are certain instances in the book of John where signs are given. There's a, a miracle that Jesus does, and John points to how this is all proving, it's pointing to that Jesus is the Son of God. And as this theme is being brought out, there's this rising tension happening, especially centered in Jerusalem. As you go through John's, John chapters 1 through 10, you'll find there's this building tension between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders, uh, there are times in the earlier chapters in the book of John where they seek to stone him, where they seek to imprison him. In fact, there's one time earlier, I believe in chapter 6, when Jesus is avoiding Jerusalem because there are rumors and murmurs that people want him killed. And so Jesus now finds himself again in Jerusalem. He's there in the temple, and these people surround him, and it says it's the Feast of Dedication. You probably know it as Hanukkah. It's wintertime. And he's there, and these Jews surround Jesus, these people in the temple, they surround Jesus, and they ask him this question. They say, why do you keep us in suspense? Tell us plainly, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the promised one? And just a spoiler alert, they're not asking because they're ready to just fall at his feet and follow him. There's nothing in the context, there's nothing in this passage that says, oh, they just really want to know. Watch how Jesus responds in the next verse, verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. So Jesus responds to these people and he says, look, I I told you. And the things that I've done, what you've seen, in Jerusalem itself, Jesus had healed a paralytic man. Word spread everywhere. It wasn't about the fact that they did not have enough proof. There wasn't enough signs. They didn't have enough arguments in favor of the fact that he was the Messiah. The problem was Jesus didn't fit in the cute little Messiah box that they had for the Messiah. They had expected this conquering uh, monarch of a king who would come and defeat the Roman Empire and destroy the Romans and establish Israel as a national power once again. That was their view of a Messiah. And so Jesus typically avoided the term Messiah, because of all the baggage that came with it. And so Jesus is is coming to them and saying, look, the reason you don't believe is not because you haven't been given proof. The reason you don't believe is because you're not a part of my flock. Now, uh, this idea of a flock, Jesus is kind of alluding back to not only something that's just referenced earlier on in the book of John, uh, in in chapter 10, uh, there's this good shepherd discourse where Jesus talks about how he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He's the one who sacrifices himself for the good of his sheep. And this analogy of God being a good shepherd and his people being his sheep, this is used throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. Very common metaphor. And this metaphor Jesus is using to show these people who are surrounding him and coming at him with these questions, Jesus is saying, look, the reason you don't believe is because you aren't a part of my flock. Now watch as he continues. Verse 27, he's going to give us what the picture of someone who does believe looks like. Verse 27 says this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. 
So the way that Jesus responds, he says, look, the reason you guys don't believe is because you're not a part of my flock. Because here's what my flock looks like. Here's what those who do believe live like. There are three simple statements that kind of summarize what Jesus is talking about. The first one that he says in verse 27 is he says, my sheep hear my voice. Now back then, just as today, uh, sheep, although they're not known to be the smartest of animals, uh, they do have an interesting ability to know the difference between the voice of their shepherd and the voice of a stranger. They know their shepherd's voice. In fact, they live in such close proximity. They are so familiar with their shepherd that, that if a stranger or a robber was to come to try and steal the sheep, they would know who is calling them. There's a familiarity. Jesus is using this language to say, my sheep, those who are my people, they have a familiarity with me. They know my voice. Doesn't mean that they nail it every time and they're just these perfect people who got their acts together and, you know, wear ties and, you know, they look good. It's not what he's talking about. He's saying they, they know his voice, that in the competing voices that call out for our attention and our devotion and affections, that the people who are part of Jesus' sheep know his voice. There's a familiarity. And then it says that Jesus knows them. He knows them. The word there that's used that we translate as knows, K-N-O-W-S, is not a word that means like, you know, I know, you know, Barry Bonds, or I know LeBron James or Dwayne Wade. That, that's not the kind of know we're talking about. Not knowing about, but a personal relationship upon personal contact. There's, there's a genuineness. We live today in a social media dominated world where we know thousands of people, and yet we don't know anyone. Jesus is saying, I know them. Like, I know their, their deepest, darkest secrets. I know their fears. I know their dreams. I know their flaws. I know what they're good at and what they're bad at. I know them. And then the third thing that he says is, they follow me. In other words, for these sheep, there, there is a sense in which you can look at their life, and even though it's slowly but surely, step by step, by step, there's this pattern in which his sheep become more and more, just ever so slightly, step by step, like Jesus. That as you look at a person who is a part of his sheep, although there are times when we feel like we're taking steps back, if you look at it over the long run, there is a pattern and an example of us being made more and more and more like him. They follow him. So Jesus gives these, these descriptions, these three descriptions. This is what it looks like to be a believer. Now, um, you've probably heard the phrase, killing two birds with one stone. Uh, you've probably heard that before. But what you probably don't know is that I'm a nerd, and I looked up where that came from. And uh, that phrase originated, um, it, it was, it's quite interesting, in the 1600s, there are a few places where that phrase, killing two birds with one stone, pops up, where it's used, and it's used with the same basic meaning, to accomplish two things at once. Now, uh, it's not actually original to the English language. Some scholars have encountered places in, uh, in Latin literature and even ancient Chinese literature where this same phrase of killing two birds with one stone is used to describe accomplishing two things at once, which is really quite fascinating if you think about it. Across cultures, across just millennia, across time periods and languages, this same phrase is used. Now, there is a small subset on the internet 
of the population on the internet. Now, every time, anytime I feel like you say there's a small subset of the population on the internet, you're just going to finish the sentence with something wild and crazy. But uh, there's a small subset of the population on the internet that is vehemently opposed to this phrase, killing two birds with one stone. And as I was looking it up, uh, there were people who were just outright, like just totally outraged at this phrase for fear that it might encourage people to kill birds with a stone. I'm serious. So they proposed some alternatives for this phrase, and uh, I was looking at them, and I was just cracking up. And all the while, I'm reading these, and I'm like, why not? Okay, I get it. You don't like the phrase. Why not just say, accomplish two things at once? But no, they insisted on coming up with this phrase, and my favorite one I wanted to share with you. Here it is. Uh, It's feeding two birds with one scone. (laughs) Feeding two birds with one scone, like blueberry scones, maple scones, uh, feeding two birds with one scone. And what's even more hilarious is that there was someone who commented on that phrase saying, hey, I don't think that one would be quite well either because scones aren't that healthy for birds, and we don't want to encourage people to feed scones to birds for fear that it might mess up the birds. So uh, I'm going to reject that, and I'm going to say Jesus is feeding two birds with one scone right here, and he's doing two things at once. What he just said, verse 27 especially, is accomplishing two things at once for two different kinds of birds that are in his audience. Just like the original readers of the book of John, those are the audience of what's happening here. We are the audience, and Jesus is doing two things at once. For one bird, if you will, Jesus is pulling back the curtain and exposing unbelief. He's showing what's underneath the surface, demonstrating in a very kind and gracious way where you stand with God. This is what my sheep look like. This is how they follow me, how they hear my voice. And so Jesus is at the same time, he's, he's showing those who are not in Christ, those who do not believe in him, who are not a part of his flock, he is showing them that they are outside of his pasture. And at the same time, he's encouraging and assuring and comforting those who are. He's giving a beautiful picture and a reminder This is who you are. The God, the creator of the universe knows you and loves you. You get to follow him. You get to hear his voice. And in the same phrase, he's doing both of these things. And what we need to realize is that both are good and loving. There are some who need to hear this message, to hear the words of Jesus and feel like Their hearts are being opened and what's really down underneath the surface is being exposed. The unbelief, the fact that we are sinners, separated from God, we need Jesus. This is being exposed and that is a good thing. That is a sweet thing because what comes next is that moment when we realize that God has made a way for our broken hearts to be made whole through Jesus. And at the same time, for those who are believers, this is an assurance, this is a comfort, this is who I am because of Jesus. So where are you? Which bird are you? Is God right now using his word to kind of tug on your heart, maybe make you feel a little bit uncomfortable and tense because he's showing you something in your soul or is he assuring and comforting and reminding you of who you are because of what Christ has done for you. Jesus is going to continue in verse uh, 28. 
along the same lines. Look what he says in verse 28. I give them eternal life. This is Jesus continuing to speak. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So Jesus starts and he's talking about this flock analogy and then he continues and he gives us a description of why we can have confidence. He gives us a description of why there are certain people who should, if you're a believer in Jesus, why you should have an assurance and a comfort and a confidence in who you are in Christ. And he uses language that's very, very helpful. He says in verse uh, 28, he says, I give them eternal life. In other words, Jesus, God, is the one who is the giver of salvation. That the people go to heaven not because they earned their way in, but because God gave it to them as a gift. So Jesus is saying, I'm the one who gives them eternal life. And not only that, but they will never perish. And the the language that's used there originally in Greek is very emphatic. It is a double negative. It is not possible. You will not perish. Ain't going to happen. Not a chance. You won't perish. And then he says, and no one will snatch you out of my hand. It's impossible for anyone to take you from my hand. And then he says something similar with a subtle difference. He says then, and the Father who is greater than all, no one is able to snatch you out of his hand. Subtle difference, but it's helpful in giving us a, a grasp of the complete nature of how secure we are if we've placed your faith in Jesus. He says at first, look, as a matter of fact, no one will snatch you out of, the Father's, out of my hand. And then he goes, and the Father who is greater than all, no one is able, no one is powerful enough, no one has the strength to even contend with the hands of Almighty God who has you in the palm of his hand. You are sure and secure in the hands of your heavenly Father. There is nothing and no one that can remove you from his hand. When a person genuinely commits their life to Christ, when they enter a relationship with God, receiving the gift, Jesus, the giver of eternal life, what begins to happen is God fundamentally changes us from the inside out in a way that you can't reverse. God doesn't do any mess-ups. When he saves someone, he keeps them. He begins the good work and he completes the good work. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. And this truth is all throughout the scriptures. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, This is not your own doing. This is not your own doing. This is not my own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul writing this makes it unmistakably clear that people who are Christians are not Christians because God said, man, they're just really awesome and I just wish they could be part of my team. But it is a gift, undeserved, a gift that God gives us and we receive by faith. And so if it's God who gives us salvation, if we are rescued by Jesus because he's the giver of eternal life, and if we didn't do enough good to get us into heaven, then why would, it, why would we even think that it's up to us to do enough good to stay and keep us in heaven? In other words, if, if it's Jesus who saved us, if it's not us who made us good enough, if it's not us doing enough good deeds to get us in to be saved, then why would it be up to us to do enough good to keep us saved? 
when a person becomes a believer in Jesus, we are faithfully preserved in the hands of our Father, secured. Hebrews 10, 14 continues in the same idea. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. By a single offering, he has perfected. That's in the perfect tense. The perfect tense means that a past action has present results. He has perfected for all time those who are being made holy. He has perfected us. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that on the cross, what Jesus did was so complete that the sacrifice that he paid was so full and made such a payment that the author of Hebrews can write it as though it's a past tense event that what Jesus did paid fully for our sins so we are secured, safe, made complete, perfected in the sight of God. That one day we will stand before God, not with our flaws and our shame and our guilt, but we'll stand before him perfectly in glory. And the author of Hebrews write that that has been secured. He has perfected for all time. So this idea, this truth that we have been secured, that we are assured, it's one of those things that it's not only that it's possible to know for certain and to have 100% certainty of where you're going when you die and the answer to that question that's so weighty, not only is it possible to know with 100% certainty, but God wants you to know. God has a desire for you to know where you stand with him. He's not desiring to be the judge over the bench saying, man, uh, I'm just going to keep this leverage over you until you get your act together. No, that's not the way that God operates. He wants us to know. And uh, perhaps this illustration will will help uh, make this seem more real. So I I have a a picture of a diploma up here. Um, It's from a very prolific, uh, prestigious university. Uh, it is called Example University, and uh, this is one of those diplomas that you can purchase online at $19.99, and uh, they will customize it for you. I know it's college application. I remember what it was like to get accepted and denied to places, so if all else fails, you just do one of these, okay? So uh, Example University, and uh, this is a diploma, and look, I, I've got a diploma, and uh, it's just a piece of paper. Uh, and before all the parents hate me, uh, the, the diploma is not the actual substance of what you celebrate when you graduate. When you graduate, you get a diploma, but it has words on it and fine print. It might be a little hard for you to read, so I, I brought the writing here just so I could read it to you. But on a diploma, it, it confers or it gives you a degree. So listen to what this diploma says. The trustees of Example University, sounds like a wise bunch. The trustees of Example University have conferred or bestowed, granted, Upon your name here, sounds like a great guy, okay? I have conferred upon your name here the degree of Bachelor of Science, together with all honors, rights, and privileges pertaining thereto. So this diploma basically is a symbol of the degree that's bestowed on a person. And it doesn't just say, okay, you're given this degree, you have this degree, Bachelor of Science, but then it says this very important phrase, it says, together with all rights, privileges, and honors thereto pertaining. In other words, this degree is a symbol, this diploma is a symbol of something that has been granted or bestowed upon you that now gives you certain rights, honors, and privileges that you once did not have. So now because you have this, you have certain honors and privileges and rights that before you did not once have in the same way yet a much more 
profound, grandiose, beautiful, spectacular way when a person becomes a Christian and receives the gift of salvation, begins to believe in Jesus. You are conferred, you are granted and bestowed the the title of son or daughter of God along with all the rights, honors, and privileges thereto appertaining. And there are certain things that you once did not have, but now you do. That you are called a son. Uh, uh, Someone who is a son has certain rights different than the other people. Dads and moms, those who are your children, they, they can ask you for things and they can do things for you that those who are not your children can't do. When a person becomes a part of Jesus' flock, there are certain rights, privileges, and honors that you receive. And included in that is the ability to know for certain that you're his, that there's an assurance. We can be assured in our identity and secured in our eternity. In fact, so important is that phrase and that concept that we wrote it on the screen so you could write it down, memorize it, put it in front of you, do what you got to do, like keep this in front of you. This is so important, this idea that because of Jesus, I can be assured in my identity and secured in my eternity. I can be assured, confident in my identity, who I am in Christ because of what Jesus did for me on the cross. I can be assured of who I am and I can be secured in my eternity. That question, that weighty question actually brings rest and peace to my soul, knowing that I'm in the hands of my heavenly father. It's not up to my ability to hold on for dear life and do enough good so that he's still happy with me. It's dependent on the one who's holding you and whose grip does not waver. God loves his sheep and he keeps them. His hands are faithful. And this truth, this idea is something that we need to consider and let sink into our lives. So here's where this is hard. There's a, a sense in which this goes from just being something we know to be true up here to actually making a difference in real life. One of the things that this truth, this idea that we are secured, that we are assured in our identity and secured in our, our, our eternity, one of the things that this truth begins to, to do in our lives as it takes root is it frees us to be more honest with God and with others. It frees us to be more honest with God and with others. See, sometimes we can get the truth up here. We can say, okay, I I understand that if it's Jesus who saved me and it wasn't me doing enough good and attending church enough and praying the right prayers, and if it was Jesus who saved me as a gift, then it's not up to me to keep me saved. I can get that up here and I can be confident in that up here, but how does that begin to take root? Because if we're honest, we live in a world where we're just constantly trying to prove ourselves. Our, our lives are just this constant battle to, uh, to prove ourselves to others, to prove ourselves to ourselves, to prove ourselves to God. And it's exhausting. And the way that that begins to vanish is that this truth begins to sink deep into our hearts that we're already approved by our Creator. The way to vanquish and destroy that need for approval that just enslaves us to be people we're not, the way to get freedom from that is to let the truth that you're already approved because of Jesus 
in the eyes of your heavenly father, the one who matters most. And so this frees you to, to be open and honest with God and others. And so when I blow it, when I, when I fail, when I have sin in my life, I don't need to run from God and hide from him for fear of what might happen if I pray to him and open up. But instead, because I know my security is in his hands, I am assured and secured. I can go to him with my struggles and my failures and be open and not put a little bow and put makeup on my sin and just kind of try and dress it up and not make it that big of a deal. Instead, I can call it for what it is. I can be honest about my struggles and say, God, this is, this is where I blew it. This is, this is what I'm struggling with in my life. Thank you for sending Jesus to pay for it. Help me to, to grow in my obedience to you, to love you more. You see, what, what's so amazing is that this truth, that because God has already approved and forgiven for us all our sins, past, present, and future, we're secured in his hands, one of the beautiful things is that even repentance and confession, things that are typically associated with sadness and brokenness, that even those moments of confession and hurt and repentance ultimately lead into praise as we reflect on the gospel that says God knows all of our mess and he knows all that we failed to confess, all that we forgot to bring up. He knows it all and he paid it in full and he loves us and approves us that truth begins to allow me to be free and open. And this also works in your relationships. Not only in your relationship with God, but in your relationship with others. Now, you can be honest with others about your struggles. You don't have to put on a show. I no longer have to hide things from my wife when I've done something wrong. I don't have to pretend like I've got my act together, like all is well. I can share with her the struggles in my life. I can be open and honest with those because I'm not afraid. And there are times when that temptation to hide them, to put it away, and to say, I'll deal with it, I've got this, I'll, I'll figure it out. And that temptation always results in more and more and more down the same line. It frees us to be honest and open about our struggles. And here's what will happen. Perhaps some of you, you, you find yourself, you're, you're faced with constantly that temptation to hide and bury your struggles to hide it and, and make sure that no one can see where you've failed. Even from the people that are closest to you, that love you the most. If that's where you're at and that's where you find yourself, allow the truth that God, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, has seen it all, paid for it, and loves you. Allow that to then open you up to be able to be honest with others so that people can come alongside you and encourage you and walk with you and hold you accountable. When we stay silent and don't confess our sin and our struggles with others, especially in the family of faith, when we don't do that, we rob ourselves of the very therapy and the very healing that God wants to use to fix it. Allow brothers and sisters in Christ, allow the people closest to you to come alongside you and help you and walk with you. When we realize we're assured and we're secured and it frees us, we don't have to prove ourselves anymore. And then the second thing that this does that's especially helpful is really this time of year, there's this uh, reevaluation that typically occurs where we look back and we think about what was all going on in this year and what we accomplished and what we want to accomplish next year. Really, what this 
season allows us to do is to look ahead and say, okay, what are some areas in my life that, that I want to grow in? What are some things that God is calling me to trust him more with? And so what this truth that our identity is assured and our eternity is secured because of Jesus, that truth begins to take root and work because now our motivations for obedience and our motivations for loving God are set in the right place. And uh, there's this parable that I want to share with you that'll help explain why this is true. Listen to what this parable is. This is from Charles Spurgeon. He tells this story. He says, once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in a land. One day there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to his king and said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot that I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart, so he turned, as he turned to go, the king said, Wait. Uh, and he said, You are clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give a plot of land to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all of this. And he said, my, if that's what you get for a carrot, I wonder what you get if you give the king something better. The next day, the nobleman came before the king and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, my Lord, I breed horses and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart, and he said, thank you. And he took the horse and simply dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed. So the king said, let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot, but you gave yourself the horse. This story, this parable is illustrating how when we approach obedience to God and, and doing things for God and coming to church and doing good deeds so as to get things from God, we are not doing things for him, we're doing them for ourselves. And the way that the gospel, the way that the message of Jesus that says, no, eternal life, heaven, salvation is given freely as a gift, not because you deserve it, not because you earned it, but because God is gracious that because of that, now we can be free to obey God, not out of selfish motivation to get something in return, but we obey him simply because we love him. We obey him freely. We don't do things for God to get things from God. We do things for God because he's already given everything to us. We love because he first loved us. And so as you navigate this next year, as I navigate this next year, May this truth sink into our hearts that because of Jesus, we are secured. We are in our Father's hands and all of our obedience to him is not done out of fear of punishment, not done out of fear of what will happen or out of selfish motivations to try and treat God like a vending machine. But instead, because he first loved us, he adopted us into his family. He bestowed upon us salvation conferred to us the title of son or daughter, along with all the rights, honors, and privileges thereto appertaining. Let's live as though that's who we are, and that's where we're going. I want to invite you to just bow your heads uh, and close your eyes in this moment, and I just want you in this quiet moment before we pray, try not to let your thoughts wander, but just focus in for a moment. And I want to ask you once again, 
In the beginning, we, we kind of talked about how Jesus is addressing two different kinds of people. He's feeding two birds with one scone. Let me ask you, which bird are you? Has this morning there been a tug and a pull in your heart? Has God lovingly and graciously said, you need me? That you don't yet believe in Jesus. Today can be that day. You may have walked in unsure. You may have walked in not really knowing what would happen. But you can leave knowing where you stand with God with 100% certainty, no doubt about it. You can be safe in your Father's hands. What you need to know is that every single one of us are sinners. We have broken God's law and God's law has broken us. God lovingly exposes our need for him. And he sent Jesus as a sacrifice to pay for our sins. He paid it in full. He did everything that needed to be done. And he rose from the dead proving that sin was paid for, that death was defeated. And if you receive by faith, by believing in Jesus, his gift, your eternity, your forever can be changed. With everybody's heads bowed, if, if you know that's you and God is pulling on your heart to make that decision right now, with everybody's heads bowed, would you just look up at me in this moment? If that's you, you need to make that decision. You've never made it before. Would you just look up at me at this moment? Awesome. In a moment, I'm gonna lead you in a prayer. And I'm gonna ask you, if you want to receive Jesus as your Savior, ask him into your life. And you could pray this just as a way of being open and honest. It's not magic words. It's just an expression of our hearts. And then in a moment, after we pray, I'm going to invite you to fill out your connection card and mark the box that says, I put my faith in Jesus for the first time today. And if you would put your name and information, would you do it? Commit right now that you'll do it. We want to celebrate that with you. If you want to receive Jesus as your Savior, know for certain where you'll, you'll be. You can pray something like this in your heart. God, I know I need you. I've broken your law. Lord, I know that Jesus came to rescue me, to redeem me and restore me. Thank you for sending him. Help me to follow him with my life. I, I want to follow him with all that I've got. Forgive me. Make me new. I love you. Father, we thank you so much for the truth that we can know. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to doubt. We can know for certain that we are safe and secure in your hands. May we start living as though we know. We love you, Lord, and we pray all of this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.